0: Welcome everyone to the AI in Business Podcast. My name is Matthew DeMello. I'm senior editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Chris Nelson, Senior Vice President of Asset Protection at Gap Incorporated. Chris joins us to share his experience in loss prevention, going from a military background to on site security, and then on to the world of data. Chris describes the challenges in each realm, where they're interrelated and what the difference looks like in data signals. Today's episode is sponsored by Riskified. And without further ado, here's that conversation. Chris, thank you so much for being with us on the program today.
1: No, thank you. I appreciate it. It'll be a fun time and I'll look forward to talking about it. Yes, a
0: big part of the reason we were very excited to have you on the show is, is you have this really interesting background in loss prevention and coming from really more the physical world to the, the data world in, in terms of that, that loss prevention enforcement. When you look at the world post-COVID and even on the data side and coming from that background, what do you see as the biggest challenges for retail and e-commerce?
1: I think that what we've seen post COVID, and I don't know that it was necessarily COVID related, but I think it was coming prior to COVID in 2018, 19, we started to see this develop a little bit as well. And maybe having people not as face-to-face during the COVID era promoted this, but we're really starting to see the sophistication of rings and organized, whether it's theft or fraud, it's really starting to come out in a way that I think we've never seen before. Clearly, we've always seen it. I mean, there, humans have been around. There's been bad acts and bad actors. But what you're starting to see now, even if you look in the newspaper, major company CEOs are calling out loss as a material impact to their profitability. And that is a really unusual Development kind of in the history I've been doing this for about thirty years that's not happened before it's widespread man. it's it's not it's not like well it, it happened over here or it happened at the super high end jewelry or handbags or something that traditionally were higher theft and higher resale it's happening across the board and that's pretty significant because we're having to deal with that in a way that is in the retail industry, if you will, really touching profitability,
0: even in terms of of loss prevention, it, how how much does that register, or is in concert with, say, like you know, like on site activity, you know, like you know, everything up from shoplifting into like the tangible online fraud. And I know, I know, your point in in your last answer is it's an increase across the board, but where are you seeing? you know, in the data that, that there's a relationship, you mentioned rings in that last answer. And if I could get a definition for that, I think that would be illuminating.
1: Rings can, it's probably a Nelson term, not a real official term, but you hear the term organized retail crime quite often. Okay. we also battle what we call habitual. So organized retail crime is really groups that are pretty highly organized in a lot of their tactics and practices stem from things that happened maybe in the past it was drug rings that were doing this but interesting for the war on drugs it became very difficult to continue to operate as a drug ring and of course criminals are going to go to the path of least resistance they're just like electricity so what you started to see is a lot of the activity that maybe the war on drugs showed people now it was happening with fraud and theft So they were doing sort of organized things. So when we talk about ORC, it's pretty organized stuff. It's not sort of happenstance coming in, grabbing what I can get, et cetera. It's very specific as a general rule. The habitual piece is also started to rear its head because if I can create a methodology that allows me to continually gain, whether it's theft or fraud, even if I'm not super organized and working to resell things or working with a broader group of people or a broader scheme, there's still the possibility to, to really make money and to support habits, those sorts of things that, we're start, that I shouldn't say we're starting to see. We've seen that for the last five years. It just seems to be developing in a broader way now
0: right and you, and you say 5 years that's almost that's almost pre pandemic kind of even like what a lot of we've seen on the tech side of like a lot of these trends were in place in the in the pandemic accelerated them rather than created them
1: yeah i think it did i think it did and i think that the sophistication is also there one of the big things that you know the the prevalence of social media and online selling places things like that really Help this sort of craft. So, if you're talking about theft and issues out of the store, it's easier now than ever to sell your product at a pretty good price online. If you're talking about more of the digital space, you know, a lot of the ID theft sort of things, one can go online and get a set of identification with which to do fraud. It's not a hard thing to do anymore. You know, 20 years ago, that didn't exist. Sure. years ago, it was lost and stolen credit cards. They'd use them quickly and, and be done with it, those sorts of things. So this prevalence of social media, the digital world has really provided, I think, tools may be the best way and an environment to describe it.
0: So let me try to sum up everything you've said in in, in the hard trend. These actors were there before they had a little bit more pressure from legislation every you know all of our efforts you know fight crime writ large for the last 30 years online tools came around and you know there's all kinds of people that that do bad things but it's this you know organized group that is the real difference because they have these electronic tools to amplify their efforts now. And they have a little bit more edge in, in this back and forth tit for tat arms race, of which you've probably seen some reaction from the enforcement side with with
1: technology and everything else. Do I have that all right? Yeah, you, you've got it right. But the other thing that is the sort of the elephant in the room is it, it is as difficult as it has ever been, I think, to get prosecution. Yeah, And there are a number of reasons for that. There is legislation that takes away the consequence for some of this in the name of, you know, focusing on crimes against people that seem much more damaging to society, et cetera. And I I get all that. The problem is that these groups understand that. So if you lower the threshold or lower the consequence, they're going to jump in, go back to the path of, of Least resistance, they're going to jump in and take that over. So they understand that the chance of getting caught, one thing, the chance of getting prosecuted is yet another, and the chance of really having a significant consequence is getting lower and lower. Now, you're starting to see a reaction now where people are realizing that theft, fraud, bad acts happening even in a retail environment, they're not just Taking on a a big corporation that has lots of money, they are decreasing the quality of life in those neighborhoods in those areas. Think of the San Franciscos, sure. the LAs, the New Yorks, the Philadelphias, the Houston's. All of that is is it's starting to come around a little bit. But quite quite frankly, getting prosecution so that this element stays away from the business is one of our most one of our most difficult tasks right now.
0: Right. And I understand that, especially from your vantage point, this this carries a a presence both, you know, on site, off site. You know, we see this both in the on online space and in the stores focusing on the online space. You know, a lot of folks that we've talked to in loss prevention and fraud even kind of on the other side of things and personalization where you're kind of collecting a lot of the same data, albeit for different purposes, but they kind of tell us that, you know, they're using gradients of kind of different kinds of bad customers because people can violate policies, but that doesn't necessarily make them, them, their mentality, you know, the equivalent of say somebody just, you know, only there to shoplift or only there to commit fraud. There's, there's gradients, you know, like there's kind of. I think the comparison we made in the last call was my uncle who used to bootleg, you know, DVDs of, of the movies just because he didn't want to wait three months. But when the movie came out in three months, he still bought it. So, you know, in the eyes of the film industry, that's still that's not a great customer, but that's still somebody maybe that, you know, they, maybe they shouldn't try too hard to necessarily, I guess, throw in jail you know, there's they, still profit there down the line. My question there is, what kinds of data really puts people in the black in the red, you know, like really puts the alarm bells around somebody for being part of this organized factor that you see is the big difference that CEOs claim are really at the bottom line for for mentioning loss prevention right at, at their margins?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things come to mind. One is repetition the amount of times they do it and the and the size of the prize or the size of the loss so there are a lot of things that happen <clears throat> whether it's return fraud or loyalty fraud or even you know things that you would see in the data related to credit card fraud a lot of things in the data that you know a good customer may bump into something but a good customer doesn't bump into it over and over and over again, <laughs> and right? Not doing the same thing over and over and over again. So it's really important to look for what are those patterns. And even in our preventative strategies, it's really important to design that in, because if you want any of us in this in my seat could pretty much stop almost all fraud. But we would crush sales, <laughs> and oh, of course, that would right, not happen. So what you're always doing is you're always trying to thread that needle, if you will, to say, let's do as little impact to the good customer as we can, and do our very best to isolate the bad customer, the bad actor, him or her, out of the equation. And and we do that a lot with repetition. We do that with things like link analysis to say how are these connected oftentimes what breaks a case is we're able to do link analysis and and there's getting to be more and more you know software packages and the like to do what i remember back when i first started in the industry you had experts who went to weeks of training and they did it manually with a stubby pencil drill now the software and the exception-based reporting we have can help us do that but that link analysis says that you know marina matt and chris seem to be connected here and they're connected by the same vehicle that came to six different parking lots or they're connected by a similar address or they were seen together those sorts of things start to let us tease out who the big groups are and who are the folks that we really need to spend the time pursuing there is probably more noise in the data than sometimes we like remember any big retailer has got more data than Heinz has got, right? We can't, data is king and, and many use it for multiple things, our concept is to dig into it and make the most out of it. That's what intelligence is information designed for action. So the trick is really teasing out what are those patterns that we're seeing and what are the links within the patterns so that we can start to say, wow, that's that Nelson group, and we can go after them. That's really been the root of success that I've seen with with you know companies I've been with and and other companies that are really good at this. They can pull together of course, of course.
0: now, for this group at the extremes, I hate to to come up with a with a more cartoonish name for them, but really all, all I can think of is like these Batman villains, like you know the real deal organized crime you know versus say you know the bad customer or even you know the struggling teenager or who shops nice. you know i have to assume there's a big gap in the data between even you know, people who qualify as criminals. Even even that teenager who they you know they're not there to shop. They're still completely in the wrong. They're still not a great customer at all. And in the true organizers, and to the degree of that organization, does it cross over from you know on site off site to both ever at the same time, or do online operations stay online? You know, and you know, shoplifters—they're—they're they're only coming into the store. What what kind of coordination? How far does it go? Especially with where we are in the arms race on the digital side.
1: Yeah, the the very best of them can traverse both.
0: Yeah, I figured
1: that you know that they're traversing both, and it depends. You know, the advantage of starting something online and then going in the stores is that you can socially engineer a cashier or something yep. like that, and and you have cash and goods readily available. It's right there, right? So when you're doing something online, there is the advantage of time where from the time you start a transaction to when it becomes full, we send the product or whatever the case would be, there is a time there where we get to research. Um, So we get the flag, we get to say, wow, this, this seems to fit here, or we've seen that address before, or Mm -hmm. that's linked to somebody. So we have the luxury of time. The best of them kind of can traverse both ways. They, They can buy online, return in stores, try and convert that return into more profitable things through gift cards or, or that sort of thing with social engineering. And by social engineering, it's really, simply just talking somebody in the store into doing something that we don't necessarily approve them doing.
0: Sure. It it sounds like basically the language of con
1: men in layman's terms. It was, oh, can I get change for this 20? And by the time they're through, they had more cash than they came in with. It's a similar thing now. I, I know what your rules say, but here, just do this.
0: Right, right. I I just need this one exception based on urgency. We've all we've all seen we've all gotten a call from or an email from this appeal. Absolutely. All those folks in terms of the most supervillain of of supervillains in terms of the organization, in terms of working both sides, in terms of the sophistication of their methods, what kind of technology are they using? And are they are they using AI? Are they that far in the arms race?
1: I would suspect they might be. I, I can't give you an example of, a, of an active case where, gosh, they used AI. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of the data they get is from the dark web. Sure. Uh, so they're getting, you know, the tradi- and that's not even modern anymore, I guess. But, you know, mm-hmm. you can get both technique and data. Chris Nelson lives at one two three four Ash Street, sure. the social, all of those sorts of things. You can get all that online now. In terms of using AI, I'm not sure. What I do know, yeah, they do know our specific policies and procedures. And I think sometimes, you know, you talked earlier about this connection between a store site and an online site or the digital site. I think the other thing that you will see at from time to time is somebody who is internal to a company. Understands exactly what the guidelines are and what the guide posts are.
0: Ah. So they,
1: then that information, they take it out to their group, and that group uses that information to defraud the company or to to take advantage of them.
0: Yes, yes. As we get to the more sophisticated, you know, really, you know, bottom <laughs> bottom of the circles of hell, villains here in terms of the wrongdoing. I see a striking resemblance to FinServe, which is why I asked if they're leveraging AI tools. And I do find it interesting. We're not quite there yet because a lot of AI tools, you know, there's a lot of vendors that can sell you, you know, a machine learning type software to at least, you know, uh, monitor online corporate activities, you know, just the way, you know, plastic bags don't. You know, manufacturers don't really care who they're selling to and who's putting in, you know, what in those plastic bags. You know, right? <laughs> like that—that that old old truism of the of the you know conventional drug dealing industry. But really, really thinking about the insider risk, there—how how big is that? I, f- I feel like that has to be really at the—we're uh, depicting it at the most sophisticated side. But what are those what do those data signals look like and? And how big of a concern should that be for for
1: retail leaders? Well, I think it's something you always have to be aware of and you always have to check for. The advantage there is we do have more data. We do have more Mm -hmm. ability to connect. You know, we we know the person, we know their home address where we send their check. We know what transactions they have participated in. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. they get caught up in that. They think that, you know, it there's so many transactions going through this major retailer that I'll get away with it and nobody will really notice it. Eventually we do. I Mm -hmm. feel more confident. And I think most of my peers would feel more confident that if you are internally stealing from us, time is on our side and we will get it because of the exception based reporting, because you will start to stick out as anomalies, you know, make, maybe take it all the way back to the old bell curve. Where why is Chris on that far right side of the bell curve with returns or returns to credit cards or post voids or whatever the case would be? Those sorts of things start to stick out. The part that's a little bit you know more dangerous, I, I don't necessarily worry about a lot of the stuff we know. It's what we don't know. And so yeah. if somebody is sophisticated and they're just sharing the information, but they're themselves not doing any bad acts that becomes a little trickier. It's the old days of, you know, gosh, this bank robbery looks like an inside job. Yeah. You know, that that sort of mentality, that can get a little bit sticky because they understand exactly how the system's going to react. They're going to, they understand what the rules are. They understand, you know, some of the exceptions that are made for good customers. All of those sorts of data points, if you will, start right. to come in and, and it makes it a little scarier.
0: Right. If if the act itself, how it was done lines up with the rules to a certain point where like even the plan is searching for these cracks, only someone on the inside would know. I, I think all of us who have seen one too many heist movies. Can kind of can kind of feature this scenario. But I want to talk more generally just for our last question. We're we're coming up on the end here. We've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, I guess the, the supervillains, the worst of the worst. And as you were saying before, you know, and, and I was alluding to that a lot of retail leaders look at the data through the lens of, you know, gradients of the bad actor. Mostly for the sake of kind of this glass actually half full mentality of always giving kind of like even customers who aren't profitable or, you know, maybe maybe they break a policy here and there. But ultimately, they still bring in for the business where, you know, the technology is allowing the worst of the worst to push their thumb a little harder on the scale here as we've been discussing, what are your best recommendations, best strategies for retail leaders to strike a better balance between you know, wanting to make exceptions for good customers who aren't great and the worst of the worst that are actually making the biggest difference to the bottom line?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question because it's an energy that in my seat you're you're always taking to the business right it's like right. you know don't don't you dare hurt our business we we fi- everybody's fighting for customers so you know i think that as we talked before my my original career was in the military and you start in the military every single operation in the military starts with an operations order and the very best very first paragraph i think it's the best too <laughs> Very first paragraph is called the situation and it paints the picture of what you're facing. And I think right. often we go right to the objective of the next paragraph is what's our objective, or our mission. We go right to this, I got to stop all fraud. I got to stop this. But if, yeah. if you pause for a moment and look at what is the situation we're dealing with and you can paint that picture, it's super powerful. So, for example, you look at if we have returns fraud, quite often people will say, My gosh, you cannot start to restrict returns because you're going to hit our very best customers. But if you look at the situation and you lay out the return patterns of our customers and you lay out how they're returning that frequency, that dollar value, what you start to see with that data picture is that the people that we're after to stop are way, way outside the norm of what a typical customer does. And oftentimes, they're 1% or less of the total returns that a company or a store or whoever will, will endure. So they are, they are really outliers. And I think if you go in and say, guys, I want to I restrict returns yes, our return rates up and, you know, I, I think I can save you money there. Your initial reaction is going to be, whoa, 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 hold on. But if you can go in there and say, I want to do that and here's why, because what we've done is we've siphoned through this, this data and mm-hmm. we know that this 1% or this one half percent is causing 20% of your issue, whatever the case would be, all of a sudden it becomes palatable. And it's not a situation where, gosh, you're gonna touch 10, 15, 20 percent of our customers. You're gonna touch less less than a percent, and you're gonna pull back that that loss. That's super important. And and in I've learned the hard way because oftentimes what we do in this industry seems restrictive. We don't wanna be restrictive. I'm I'm a shareholder just like everybody else in a company that I work with. You have to be. Thinking of commerce when you when you exercise our role and and I think you have to be more sophisticated than maybe in the past. I we we work through now this philosophy where you have to combine the, the physical security, the data security, and the virtual security. And really, you know, when I started many years ago, it was big dudes at the door and you protected and you had cameras up as a deterrent and you had EAS and that sort of thing, you can't do that anymore. We're in a data led world, right? Most scams have a data component to them, so you're not gonna see it that way. You still have to have some of that, but that took us into the data world where you started to say, how do we look at data? How do I use that data to point myself in the right direction? Like I said before, I'm not worried about what I know, I'm worried about what I don't know. With data, we know a lot more now than we did when I started. And now the kind of the icing on the cake for us is going down this virtual world. And that's the AI world. And, you know, we've started to use it in the physical security realm and we'll start to use it this coming year testing in the theft realm. But AI can help us when we have, a, for instance, a digitized IP camera system. Now you can load that on things and, and AI video can tell us things. We've picked up things in San Francisco around the headquarters of bad acts that our cameras can pick up and alert somebody. I don't have to see it, Right, picks it up, it alerts an operator and the operator can get help. Those sorts of things are really, really critical. And, you know, as we look at data, there's no doubt in my mind that looking at AI with data, that will start to help us call it the old machine learning or call it true AI, it's going to start to tease out those exceptions that I was talking about that maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe we didn't have before. It's going to tease those out. And if I combine that with our link analysis, it's, it's, it's pretty darn exciting stuff.
0: Before we leave, because that was, that was just such a big answer. And I do want to get to our, our conversation for a little bit later today, but that was such a big answer in terms of of data and the AI capabilities. I just want to hone in right there before before we leave. What do you see as the you you were saying there's this difference between machine learning and in the true AI What do you see as the latter capabilities, and what will that look like you know five years from now in terms of the video capture elements that that you were describing in that last answer? And this difference between the world of data and the world of virtual, because I think a lot of business leaders, you know, they think data, they think AI capabilities right away, but but you
1: put them in different categories. I, I just want to know why that is, yeah, to me, the the data is all of that data that we have. It sits there. It is a profound resource. The traditional exception reporting, tell me when Matthew uses, you know, the same credit card in multiple transactions, Got it. Right. all sorts of things. That's data that you can interrogate, if you will. But really what that's dependent on is me thinking up stuff to interrogate it with. Right. When I and then get, it, when I get into this virtual world now, tell me stuff I don't know. Tell me patterns I can't see because the data is so vast that I can't see it all or I can't interrogate it enough to figure it out. So tell me where the connections are, even if we get it started to say, what is common about all of these fraudulent digital transactions? What is the commonality? We've started to play with it a little bit in shortage. One of the great mysteries in the world is, what what causes store shortage and what are the indicators ahead of time? I do an inventory, I can say, gosh, we're supposed to have that and it's not here. But what we're really fascinated with now is, can you tell me in those stores where that happens a lot and I have a higher shortage rate, can you tell me what is happening with all of the other KPIs? Is it a service equation? Is it a shipment equation? Is it an equation with how we're allocating what's going on? And I can't get to all that. I could. I'd have to have a thousand people that were really smart with data to look at it, but can AI start to say, you know, we noticed when you had high shortage, these three indicators seem to ping very high. And it may not be the smoking gun, so to speak, but it can start to lean me again in the right direction. So I, I think AI gives me gives me the ability as as a leader to have the team look at a broader set of data and start to answer questions maybe I can't even ask yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, we hear that a lot definitely across sectors. Chris, this has been very informative for, for our audience and beyond. Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast this week.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care.
0: Wrapping up today's episode, I know we spent a fair amount of time talking about what I quickly termed supervillains or the worst of the worst fraud offenders, but I think that sweet spot in the underlying lessons that Chris underscored about the business, about being a shareholder, all says a lot about the culture of loss prevention as a realm where both physical and database challenges are colliding in very interesting ways, definitely in ways we try to track here on the podcast platform. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.